Hey out there in podcast land, this is Jim coming to you from the pandemic, uh, quarantine. Yeah, feeling better today. Um, yeah, yesterday, I, the last episode, I went off on a, I don't know, kind of a rant, but not really. What passes for a rant with me? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, on the whole sex robot thing, just it, it creeps me out. I, 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 I just ended up shutting my computer. I was like, I think I need to just disconnect and stop looking at stuff on the internet and like trying to read into it. And yeah, somebody, um, I've, I've kind of been curious about astrology lately, not because I think it is like any sort of, well, I, I don't know what there is to it. it, it I, I'm, I'm of course a very skeptical person, so I don't know what, I don't know if it's substantiated uh, but what I do know is somebody, somebody recommended an app called the pattern, which I downloaded yesterday and, um, put in my information and that gave me my chart in its own form. It doesn't say anything about the planet. Just like, here are the aspects of your life. Here's an interpretation. Here's some advice for you. And it, uh, I don't know. It really kind of just, I don't mellowed me out. I was like, this feels so good. Like it was, it was of course accurate, or at least it seemed accurate as many of those things often do. Um, I don't know, but for me, it doesn't really matter if there is science or not behind it. It's just, it was what I needed at that moment. And I, yeah, I thought it was great. It's like, it's like I could go see a psychic and I know there's nothing to it. It's just cold reading. They're just looking at you and saying, okay, what can I, what can I surmise about, uh, about this person and they kind of base their reading on that kind of generalize it when they get specific it's targeted to things they can read about you but I mean still it's like going and having some I think I think bedside manner counts for a lot there and even if you're if you're stressed like just having some stranger tell you in some calm voice you know here is my prognostication like I, I don't know how much the science really matters at, at that point you know it's just there's another human being kind of paying attention to you. I can see why that has value. Besides, even if it's a general reading, even if they're just like giving you advice that's coming off of some, I don't know, I don't know where people who do tarot cards, I don't know where they get their information, if they're just kind of ad-libbing that or if they have like uh, scripts that they can draw off of, but just even if it's a script, it's like kind of targeted towards you. It, uh, it can kind of put things in perspective. I can see why people do it. Um, I can see it going too far. I can see people relying on that too much and just, I think you kind of have to take it sort of considerate and ultimately you have to make your own decision. I don't think you can, you can, you can't fall back on psychic readings or anything like astrology as how should I live my life? I think that's ultimately up to you. If you try to delegate it to, to things like astrology, I think you're, that's, yeah, when you start taking it literally and it's the only thing you got. Anyway, so yeah, I, I've spent today like mostly disconnected. I just went out and like, again, sat in the sun, let the, the just let the heat, like the UV rays like beat down and fry my skull. And it, uh, it felt, it felt good.
kind of sat there with my eyes closed for like three hours. And uh, yeah, just letting whatever drift through my head. It was nice. I, I probably wouldn't hurt me to go like be a monk somewhere and just take a vow of silence and, you know, walk around a garden for uh, two two years or however long it takes. I don't know how long they do that stuff, a vow of silence, but uh, yeah. Anyway, um, what am I going to talk about? Yeah, so uh, I'm a Gemini. I'll transition away from astrology here in a second. Trust me, I'm not going to talk about... I don't know much about Gemini, actually, like all the archetypes, the um, whatever your sign is. Uh, it depends on which one I consult, actually. Like half of them, like if I open up with an astrology book, uh, I was born on May 21st. And so some of the books say that I'm a Taurus because sometimes the um, sometimes the range is through May 21st. And sometimes I'm a Gemini because the range starts at May 21st. So it's, it, it's I don't think there's scientific consensus, uh, if you will, about which one that I am or scientistic consensus, I suppose I should say. Um, but I, I think I tend to identify with the Gemini. Like I try to like see both sides of something and try to reserve like falling into either camp. Uh, somebody asked me recently, I forget who posed the question, but like, well, what was the thing that had the biggest influence on your political beliefs? And this uh, might sound silly, but it was it was an old independent movie from the middle of the 1990s called The Last Supper, which has absolutely nothing to do with, uh, you know, the, the story in the Gospels. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a it's a story about a bunch of very liberal graduate students living in a, in a rural co-op. They're all going to a university nearby. But it's, you know, they, they live out, out of the city, kind of off in the, a lot of land around them, they have a big yard. And they have, they, they have guests over for dinner every week. And uh, the movie opens with their, their one guest they're having uh, cancels. And so one of the characters had his car break down. And the person that gave him a ride, they say, well, hey, you just drove our roommate home. Why don't you come in uh, and, you know, have dinner with us? It's played by Bill Paxton, uh, and it's, um, yeah, he's, he's a very conservative, uh, by conservative, I mean very neo-Nazi, uh, you know, white supremacy, was a soldier, and he's, you know, he's absolutely disgusted when he finds out that he's at a, at a dinner with a bunch of, uh, as he says, damn liberals. So he kind of threatens them, you know, he says, like, you guys just are all talk, you know, you never actually do anything. Uh, you don't take any action in the world. And they, they kind of kill him in what could loosely be called self-defense. And so they, then they kind of unconvincingly, as a group, uh, decide, okay, let's just bury this guy in the yard. And then they sort of say, hey, you know, we could just do this every week. Let's invite somebody over who's like a conservative. And if we can't change their mind and convince them that we're, we're correct, then we'll just we'll just kill them. The justification being that, like, they use the whole thought experiment about what if you 
what if you could go back in time and kill Hitler before World War II? Would you do that to save all those millions of people? And of course, they all kind of say yes. And so they say, well, that's, that's what we're doing. That's the rationale. We're just going to clean up the world, prevent any future, future crime. They think of themselves as precogs. Uh, so they, they start doing this and they end up killing like 12 people. Um, you know, people have, who cares about the environment? You know, um, abortion is murder. Uh, you know, homosexuality is a sin, it's an abomination and, uh, you know, must be wiped out. And the whole time throughout the movie, there is this, uh, there's this conservative TV talking head, uh, who's played by, uh, Ron Perlman, uh, who's on the television, you know, making all these, uh, outlandish points. He's like a Glenn Beck sort of type. Maybe, I, I guess you could think of him as Rush Limbaugh. Although Rush Limbaugh in the 90s, not so much now. Uh, but but circumstantially, uh, he ends up in this little town and he's stuck at the airport because there's a thunderstorm and he can't leave. And a couple of the characters uh, are talking to him and he says, hey, where can I get a good meal around here? Where can, where can I get some dinner? And they're like, we know right where you can get some dinner. So they invite him back to the house. He ends up at their table. And they're talking to him, and he, um, it's this scene, it's this, this final scene in the movie when he finally ends up there, what he says, this is what really shaped my perspective on politics. Um, because they're talking to him, they're, they're, they're kind of baiting him and saying like, hey, you know, we know you're really conservative, why don't you just tell us that you, you know, you hate this or that. And he's, he ends up being much more middle of the road. Like he's very much a centrist and he's, he, he clearly espouses the, uh, the liberal philosophy, like in the John Stuart Mill sense of, um, tolerance, you know, not everybody's going to agree with you, but the whole point is there's a balance. And I, I think the thing that stuck with me is that he's, they're t- telling him like your followers, you know, they're, they're. They commit crimes. They're, they're terrible people. And he's like, well, I can't control what they do. People are going to follow me just because I'm talking. I, I don't mean to cause any harm, but I, I'm, I'm saying things and sometimes people take them incorrectly and they, they do things I wouldn't agree with. So I, I really can't control that. But he was like, you know, when it comes to Washington, you know, it's not like there's one side or the other that's really in power because you have this system of checks and balances. And he says, you know, I, I, he says, I suggest that the, um, the more extreme, uh, you know, the opposites get on either side, the left and the right of the political spectrum, uh, the more moderate society becomes. Because when you average out both those extremes, you end up with a society that's pretty well anchored in the middle. You have to compromise, and that tends to land somewhere in the center, and that's where most people live. So the, the extremes of both uh, parties grab all the headlines. And I remember thinking, this is interesting because it's like the, there is this innate conflict. Like conflict is just structured into the whole thing. And that is actually what gives it its, its stability in a way. Because if either party were to take its ideological view to its extreme, to institute it, 
you know, to, to the letter of the law, um, then it's probably going to be mistaken. The very fact that we have a two-party system with two groups of people that vehemently oppose each other. If you have a president who's liberal, you're going to have the, you know, the conservatives definitely scrutinizing everything he's doing, criticizing it. And the opposite is true. So it ends up being that nobody can really seize uh, power and hold it uh, without, basically, there's always going to be some debate. And I like that idea. I like that just because, again, Gemini, like I can see both sides. I consider myself politically centrist. I, I don't toe the party line either way. But I, I, but I like that idea. I think that that's actually what gives the country its, its stability is that there's an inherent instability. In it. You know, it starts off with, should we be loyal to the British crown or should we declare independence? Should we have a revolution and try and establish our own country? This is the first binary argument, and of course, it uh, it's very acrimonious. What should the government, you know, how should the government be structured? Should the, should the power go to the states or to the central federal government? Uh, yeah, then you have the, this is where you get the, um, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans. And this is the original ideological split uh, in, the, in the country between the political parties in the first few presidencies. And so you have the, these two camps pulling tug of war with each other. Neither one can really win. And each one is making sure that the other doesn't win completely, but both have influence. Both push things forward, uh, but they are checks and balances on each other. And I like that. I think that actually, if the United States is going to survive uh, as a political system, as a country, uh, for I don't know, an extended period of time, we still have more, I don't know how much longer we have before this all collapses. Uh, it could be 10 years. It could be a thousand. I really don't know, but eventually it will collapse. But if we have anything that's working in our favor, it's that there is, there are checks and balances, like neither extreme uh gets its way which makes sense because you know um people change i i would certainly say there are there are elements of the left that have um taken their ideology to an extreme that is i would say too far it's not something you want codified into law and of course i could say the same thing about the right um their ideology is, uh, at its most extreme, a very dangerous set of ideas that you, you don't want to be flirting with. It's the same as true on both sides. Neither extreme, you don't want. You want to be able to look at those ideas, but you don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to take them too seriously. Take them seriously in, in that knowing that there are people out there who are dangerous enough to be advocating for them and don't realize the potential downsides of what they're advocating. Uh, but they're not things you want to be adopting. But I think that's 
Somebody asked on Facebook, one of my friends, he's apparently doing his dissertation on, I, I want to say education. I know he's in education. I think he's a teacher. I think his dissertation has something to do with the administration of education. And he asked about game theory, uh, I think regarding decisions. And he's asking like, you know, about the, about the prisoner's dilemma, that sort of thing. Like what's the correct strategy? Um, game theory is, is applicable in cases. It's a branch of mathematics when, when there's, mathematics is generally pretty straightforward. Um, it's usually obvious what the correct outcome is. But if you have a situation in which your decision is going to influence another person's decision and that person's decision will influence you, these things sort of feed on each other. Um, this is where game theory shines. It's one of the few branches of mathematics that actually has had success in being applied to the social sciences, which are, are typically difficult to quantify. Um, you know, statistics and sociology notwithstanding. But my friend is asking like, who's interested in game theory? Who knows something about it? Are there any experts out there? You know, what do you got for me? I'm just, I'm just fishing. And I, this, I don't think this has anything to do with what he was asking, but I posted it anyway. My favorite aspect of game theory, what I, what I absolutely love is the notion of what is called the hawk dove game in evolution. So it was the evolutionary biologist, John Maynard Keynes, who first decided to apply game theory to evolution. Uh, he wrote some papers about it and published a slim little book about it called um, Evolution and the Theory of Games, uh, which is a fascinating little read. You can find an affordable copy of it anywhere. Uh, it's a very small book, not very long, but worth reading if you're interested in the matter. Uh, and also Richard Dawkins' uh, Selfish Gene, um, which tells you just how old this theory is. This was that book was published, I want to say late 60s, early 70s, and Selfish Gene is 1975. And in chapter five of there is chapter on aggression. He's talking about the question of how exactly can aggression exist? For that matter, how can altruism exist? If you have a population of organisms that are altruistic and they're just cooperative, they're helping each other all the time, what's to stop them from being taken advantage of? What's to stop aggressive organisms from coming in and destroying them? And if you have a population of organisms that are just aggressive, uh, of course, they're, they're going to be very, very hard to take over. Uh, but if they're, if they're so aggressive, there's not going to be any cooperation. There's a lack of social cohesion there. So the question is, how, how can this be? How can you have one thing or another? Um, so the idea in this, and I'll try not to butcher this, is that game theory tends to rest on a payoff matrix. And you have two axes. And in this case, there are, there's a, there are two items on the x-axis and two axes on the y-axis. Um, so there's a grid of two by two grid of four possibilities. And 
imagine you're a pigeon and let's say you come across another pigeon and there's contention for some resource. Let's say it's some food. Now you can do one of two things. Let's say you, you can just say, okay, I don't care about the food. And just yield to the other pigeon. And in some cases you might do that if it's a very, very large pigeon. You know, if, if it's a bully pigeon, it might be in your best interest not to be aggressive in that case. Or you can choose to threaten it. Like, let's say I'm, I'm going to fight for this food. I'm going to defend it. Those are your two options. Now, pigeon number two has two options in response to uh, fighting. So if you threaten to fight, um, it can either choose to fight you or it can back down. It can say, okay, I'm going to yield. Maybe you are the bully pigeon and it just doesn't see it being worth it. And so there is, there is this grid of possibilities. There's four of them and there, it's a payoff matrix. So in each, in each cell, there is your expected payoff. So if you both fight each other, you're both going to incur the cost that comes with injury. You're going to end up being that less fit. It's a blow to your, your reproductive fitness or your um, fitness as an organism. But there is the potential for a, a reward for getting the food, which may increase your fitness. And if you threaten to fight, the other one backs down, then you get the entire reward. And if, you know, you you back off and the other one decides to just take the food, then they get the entire food. Um, so it ha this has to be looked at in the light of, uh, like, when is it worthwhile? Like you, like I said, like if it's a bully pigeon, maybe you don't fight at all. And so you, you're, it's partly assessing the probability of the situation. One, how, how much food is there and how likely am I to win it? Like, or I think organisms are, like, I had a coworker of mine ask, she was, we were at lunch and she said, where, where does probability come from? Like, how did probability evolve? I think this is it. Because th there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. You don't know. Or it was the question, how did gambling evolve? And it, yeah, it's because you, you face situations like these. It gets life or death. Do you get food or don't you? And it's, it's generally a matter of, I have to just weigh the odds. I have to figure out the expected value based on how much, what the potential payoff is and the expected uh, probability that I win. What are the odds that I get the payoff? And so if you take all this into account, you end up with, okay, roughly here's how likely it is that, uh, yeah, so this is, why, this is why I think organisms eventually start thinking probabilistically and why we like gambling. I think we like, I think we have a lot of certainty in how we get our food now. There's just this, there's this instinct, like we need to assess risk, go out in our environment and figure out how much we can, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so with that said, with that whole setup, let me, let me bottom line the overall conclusion here. So you, you don't have... It's not that you have organisms that are wholly aggressive or wholly cooperative. It's not that they're either or. 
that any given individual is kind of assessing the, the, the situation that they're in. And they're choosing to be aggressive or cooperative. They're choosing fight or flight, um, probabilistically. Is it worth the risk to get the food? Um, worth the risk of injury? And so organisms in different, an individual organism may be aggressive and cooperative in a different balance. And a population itself may be made of some individuals who tend to be cooperative uh, more often than they are uh, aggressive. And some are the opposite. Some, some tend to be more aggressive. So you end up with this, with this balance. You know, it, it's a mixture of both aggressive and cooperative behavior. And what John Maynard Keynes's observation was is that let's say you have a population. Um, well, first of all, this system is dynamical, uh, meaning that meaning that you can look at it at any given point in time, and you can say, well, okay, well, here is the mixture of aggressiveness and cooperativeness. And as you as there are trials, as there are fights for food these pigeons like approach each other and have their little battles in an environment. Uh, that will change. Like the pigeons that are too cooperative may die out and won't pass on their genes. And the ones that are uh, maybe too aggressive, if there is social cohesion, then maybe they're excluded from the group. Maybe some pigeons like figure out how to cooperate with each other. I don't think this happens in, I don't know if this happens with pigeons, but an animal, you know, uh, if one's too aggressive, it gets ostracized. And it, so it doesn't end up passing on its genes. It's got to figure out what its best move is, but it might guess wrong. And so as the system evolves over time, as there are generations of pigeons passing on their genes and these genetics give a certain predisposition or aggressiveness and cooperativeness uh, throughout a population, as this happens, eventually the mix will tend towards a stable equilibrium. So it may start, but there's a lot of cooperation. And it turns out that the pigeons who are aggressive uh, tend to breed in, in bigger numbers because they tend to get the food from the cooperative population. So the aggressive factor, the proportion of overall aggressiveness will increase because those pigeons are reproducing more. But then it gets too aggressive and then it eventually checks itself back down the other way. And you end up after some oscillating with this, with this equilibrium point, which is stable. Basically, it doesn't change over time as the, as the games happen, as the fights for resources happen, and as pigeons are producing baby pigeons, there ends up being a roughly a stable mixture of both the factors that doesn't change over time. And the observation was that if you, once you have this equilibrium point, it does not matter if let's say you have an aggressive bunch of pigeons that come from an outside environment, you have a group of pigeons living, let's say in New York city, let's say some pigeons come from New Jersey and they're really aggressive because you know how New York and New Jersey love each other. Uh, so, 
they come in, they're really aggressive. Now the aggressiveness will increase for a time because suddenly there are there is this introduction of more aggressive pigeons. Now from the population as a whole, you're gonna see the same dynamics. Like essentially aggressiveness will eventually taper down. It, you'll basically return to that same equilibrium point assuming that the factors in the environment are constant. So I find this fascinating because it basically says you can have coexisting opposites and those opposites exist because they produce a stable system, not because either position is the morally superior one, because frankly, biology doesn't care about our, you know, human concepts of morality. It doesn't matter. It cares about stability. Whatever is stable survives. This is what Richard Dawkins says at the beginning of uh, the chapter on aggression in his selfish gene is that survival of the fittest is a more specific example of the more general rule of survival of the stable. If molecules come together and form an organism that can exist without disintegrating into just random molecules in the air, and it's able to reproduce itself stably in a way that's constant, that is the operating principle of life. And so this is at pop the level of populations. You, you can reach an equilibrium point of stability where enough organisms survive. Uh, there's enough cooperativeness, there is social cohesion, but there's enough aggression that uh, they can't be overtaken by outsiders. I think this has ramifications for partisan politics, of course. This is uh, gets back to the whole harmony, like the two sides are at war with each other. But I think that, that instability helps. And if you look at any given, in a given issue, I, I this is an extrapolation that is not coming from any game theory I've ever read, but I would guess that our discussion about immigration probably has... I think there are some applications of this idea there with the general tendency being that on the right, you tend to see people being very, very against immigration. They're like, you know, at the very extreme, they say, keep America white. I'm not advocating that, but they tend to be like, it should be hard for outsiders to come in. You know, let's build a border wall along the South you know, between Mexico and the United States. Uh, make it harder for there to be green cards, you know, more regulation. Um, generally, I mean, uh, Obama was actually a pretty, was actually pretty tough on immigration. He, he, he earned the nickname at some point deporter in chief. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not just conservatives, but, you know, generally speaking there, there's a faction of people out there that tend to take a hard line against letting outsiders become naturalized and how many uh, outsiders become naturalized and what their rights are when they're here, once they're, once they become naturalized. And then on the, on the other side of this argument, uh, generally these days, the left, is that the notion of multiculturalism, you know, we should, we should let lots of people in. And I, I'm excluding for the moment, the refugee uh, crisis, that's, a, that's a separate, that's, those are people in crisis who I think just ignore that for now. Like in general, how many how many people from foreign countries should be should we allow coming in 
as a matter of course. And they would say, well, we should just import as many as we can because diversity is good. It'll, it'll increase, like more diversity equals better United States. But I think just like saying, you know, keep everyone out, I think that importing as many people as possible for more diversity, I don't think that follows. Like having no diversity is bad. Having diversity is good. I don't think it follows from that, that having as much diversity as possible, like bringing in as many people as possible, like balancing out who is here, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that that is a good thing. There's a point at which you can have too much. Uh, and, and as an extreme example of that, um, Karl Popper, um, the American philosopher, wrote uh, in one of his political writings about the paradox of toleration, which is to say that any society that is 100% tolerant uh, of any viewpoints that are in contradistinction to its own will be overtaken by intolerant outsiders. Meaning if you accept some sort of moral cultural relativism, like all cultures are equally acceptable and they're all welcome, then eventually you'll get an intolerant one that will overtake the tolerant culture and it will displace whatever is there. It's, it's the pigeons again. I, I think it's, it's uh, so to what extent should we be suspicious of outsiders? I, I think the answer is maybe a little bit. I don't, I don't think it's unhealthy for a, a nation to have some suspicion of outsiders in its DNA, just a little bit. I'm not saying you want, I'm not saying you want neo-Nazis, not at all. That's, that's too far, but I'm also saying you don't want the exact opposite. I mean, it's, you, you have to be careful to say, not to say that like, okay, a Nazi thinks this. If you take the exact opposite of that, because Nazis are always wrong, that must be the correct course of action. That is of course a fallacy, which I'm sure has a name But as the old cliche goes, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I think that, that that's a balance. I think how much toleration there is for outsiders, there's, there's probably some measure of it that is healthy in a population that keeps things stable. And of course, there are, there are countries out there. If not, I'm not, I probably shouldn't say entire countries, but there are certainly political leaders out there and governments that look at the United States and do wish us ill. I don't think I even have to point fingers at which ones those, those might be. I think people have a general sense of that. And if we were to let them come in, they would certainly displace our political system. They could be subverted from the inside. It's been tried. The Nazis had people over here during World War II. They managed to get as a uh, as high as Charles Lindbergh. This is the plot of, uh, what is it, the plot against America? I haven't seen this. This is an old, uh, I think, Philip Roth novel. It's now a miniseries on HBO, but this is about, you know, Charles Lindbergh kind of got influenced by Nazi ideology. He at least went up and gave some speeches uh, shortly before the United States entered the war. And I think he made a bid for the presidency. Uh, he didn't, I don't think he came anywhere close to winning, but he was throwing around some anti-Semitic rhetoric very, very publicly. 
And that's, it's, it, it would be wrong to think that that couldn't possibly pose a threat to us. Subversion is certainly something, like people say McCarthyism has become a synonym for, you know, a witch hunt, weeding out communists. I'm, I'm pretty sure Joe McCarthy made some mistakes. I think he might have gone a little overboard, but was his idea sound? The, the notion that maybe there were Russian operatives in the government? You can't look at that and say that that's just simply crazy, that that could not happen. Whether or not Joe McCarthy was right, I don't know that much about history, but it it would be a mistake to simply dismiss it as being, well, that's just paranoia. We are certainly not above subversion. I haven't seen that many. I, I, I'm thinking about getting HBO. I don't know if Hulu is synonymous with HBO. Like if you get Hulu, you get access to HBO stuff. Some part of me wants to figure this out, but some part of me knows that I, I really don't not only don't need to spend the time figuring this out and getting this question answered, I don't need to spend the time watching all that stuff. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I should. I haven't been watching. I'm still still working my way through community. God, that is hilarious. When I need a levity, that is perfect. Yeah, so I guess that's my point. Opposites. Opposites remain in balance. It's it's probably the same thing in Christianity too. Christianity has it has been as successful as it has because it has an inherent instability in it. It has a lot of inherent instabilities in it. It it, it the thing is that like there are there are so many binary positions you can take on either side of that. And it's been that way from the get go. I, I heard once that, um, so the, one of the original questions, and there were many, is everybody knew and accepted that Jesus was the son of God, but which God was Jesus of? Was he talking about Plato's God, the God of perfection, rarefied, had no emotions, just a, just a perfect robot, like the platonic ideal of a God? Or was it the Hebrew God, that very personal God who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, um, was very temperamental, very emotional, seemed to embody both good and evil. Interesting that that question arose, seeing that Jesus was a rabbi. Um, but of course, we both know which one of those positions won out. Is it justification by faith or justification by works? Are we to be Jewish and keep the law? Or are we just to have faith and keep the little bit of the law that Jesus happened to restate in the New Testament? This could be something like the Ebionites and the Marcionites. Fast forward to the Justinian Council, the Monosophites and the Diosophites. Is it uh, that Jesus has one nature that is both human and divine, like a mixture of two colors? Red and blue make purple? Or is it uh, that he has two natures? 
uh, one human and one divine, and they both kind of occupy the single vessel like oil and water, but do not mix. The Chalcedonian um, interpretation. And so th this is this is, I think, part of why Christianity is so successful, because you can open up the Bible and you can find you can find parts that back up one point of view, and those will apply for some people, and you can open up other parts of it, read other parts, and say that backs up the other point of view, which appeal to other people. So it can be one thing to one person and entirely another thing, the exact opposite to someone else. So again, it's that was one of the things I, I wondered about. I, I was confused by this because once I found my way into just trying to practice Christianity, there was not harmony within the religion itself. There was actually mountains of division. And to be honest, part of the reason I got away from it is because I found the, uh, the discussion outside of Christianity to be more interesting, like the debate outside of Christianity, like Christianity or not. That's more interesting than uh, Christianity A versus Christianity B. And there's certainly more than A and B. So I like to pick the battleground I sit on and uh, choose to see both sides of. But I mean, it's easy to be cynical about that and say, well, people just pick one thing or the other. The thing is, every... This is, this is one of the things that new, new atheists say. They, they say, look at the Bible. One part says this, the other part says that. Those are in contradiction with each other. What the heck? This must mean it isn't true. It's just, it just gets rejected. There is some need, I think, on the part of human beings to be able to balance contradictory ideas in your head, ideas that are at odds with each other. And I think we all do that, but there's... Think of how many things you believe. Uh, there, there's no way you could ever sit down and compare every single thing you think with every single other thing you think and look for consistency, or I guess inconsistency. So you probably hold some beliefs that you know conflict with other ones. We're all multitudes. And so I think that, of course, it helps. Like Christianity survives because People tend to split into two camps and argue about it. And there's kind of this checks and balance. You have this stability from this inherent conflict. But I think it works within a single human mind as well. If you have to, if you have, to have these opposites raging, these questions of, well, I'm trying to think of a good example of this ideologically. I guess I could fall back on the simple one that, you know, we are, we are both sinful and are not capable of being perfect. Some people believe the extreme are not even capable of being good. And yet we have the potential for being good. We should try to do good, perhaps through our works. So it's two conflicting ideas, but it, there is, it, it kind of allows a human being to hold in their head from this one mythology of uh, conflicting positions. So the, whatever internal struggle that's happening in human beings anyway um, gets codified 
in this mythology. It, it finds an outlet for expression in this ideology. And I do think there's some value in that. I think there's, there's value in having, adopting a system that is at odds with itself somewhat. Just in terms of human psychology. I really can't back that up, but it's an idea to, it's an idea I've been thinking about. I don't quite know how to prove it, but I think there's something to it. Anyway, yeah, today has been great. I really haven't been reading. I've really just been, like I said, I went out and cooked my, my head in the sun, just sat there and thought. Like whenever I, uh, I mentioned this before, but I, I heard somebody say once that writers all have two modes, input mode and output mode. And if you're having writer's block, it just means you're in input mode. You just have to, you just have to start reading and wait until you're, you're, you feel like you need to put forth. Then you'll start writing. I feel like I, I've, I've just been in output mode. And generally I, I sit down, I kind of struggle to like shove ideas in my head, but I feel like there is something that demands to express itself. It's kind of blocking. Like I'm trying to put things in, but there's this flow out. Uh, just insists on coming out. So, yeah. I'm really glad I have this time. It would be nice to have money coming in at this particular point. Um, but, you know. Okay. This was good. We should do this again sometime. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in, as it were, wherever you are during this pandemic. I hope you're doing good. Hope you're healthy. Hope you're getting through all right. I'm going to say, hey, this is me. This is Jim signing off. I will uh, see you next time. Cheers.